Well, church, today marks the end of our look at Israel's strongest judge today, Samson. The strongest physically, but weakest, some would argue, mentally and spiritually, if stereotypes were to be believed. Samson certainly fits the mold, doesn't he? The guy with muscles in his earlobes, but as soon as he opens his mouth, reveals the empty space that was between those earlobes. Of all the judges that we've encountered to date, and we've examined eight, if you've been with us this entire time, Othniel, Ehud, Deborah, Gideon, Abimelech, Tola, Jair, and then Jephthah. And we've mentioned in passing a further four, Shamgar, Ibsen, Ellen, and Abdon. So of all the judges, 12 and counting, Samson is by far the most distinct. In each case prior, we've seen God's leaders concern for their people, noted their cooperative work with others, and even in the instances where we've been given little information, the tone of the text has revealed their appreciation, these judges' appreciation of their role as deliverers. However, Samson, Samson's of an, of an altogether different sort, isn't he? The strongest judge, the judge whose birth was prophesied by an angel, the judge set apart to God by birth or at birth, and yet the judge who still sought a wife from among God's enemies, the judge who deliberately broke his Nazaritic vows by touching the dead and drinking wine, and the judge whose leadership was never enacted, at least not from his perspective, was never enacted for his people's sake. Samson saving Israel, it seems, was simply the divine byproduct of his own self-serving actions. And yet, church, despite his personal shortcomings, we noted God's providence displayed as he, Yahweh, fulfilled his promise to deliver his people despite the fact that they didn't ask for it, and his instrument was as sinful as he was strong. God displayed his great salvation as he provided his people with a freedom they didn't deserve. And friends, the greatness of God's salvation hasn't changed because he still saves undeserving people who are dead in their sins by bringing them to life through the heard word of the gospel. I believe that the story of Samson directs us to see God's promised salvation in the deliverer the Messiah, whose strength is far greater than all his enemies, but who still submitted himself to his Father's will and died in our place on a cross. Samson's life and saving work revealed God's people's need of a Savior who would be like them in every way but without sin. It's a fact made even more clearly in the text that we're about to read together today. And so if you have your Bibles, would you open them with me to Judges 16? Judges 16 and find verse 1. Judges 16.1. Our text for this morning may be broken into two, albeit unequal, but two parts nonetheless. And both involve women and both are set or centered on the city of Gaza. And I believe that our study today will serve to only underscore the truth that we've seen consistently communicated to this point in our series. And that is that God's salvation is so very great. So, would you follow along as I start reading beginning with verse 1. Judges 16, verse 1. One day, Samson went to Gaza where he saw a prostitute. He went in to spend the night with her. The people of Gaza were told, Samson is here. So they surrounded the place and lay in wait for him all night at the city gate. They made no move during the night, saying, at dawn, we'll kill him. But Samson lay there only until the middle of the night. Then he got up and took hold of the doors of the city gate together with the two posts and tore them loose, bar and all. 
He lifted them to his shoulders and carried them to the top of the hill that faces Hebron. And let's pause there. Verse 3 marks the conclusion of that first section or story that's contained here in chapter 16, as I mentioned. Now, if you're like me, then as you read this brief account in preparation this past week, in preparation for our time together this morning, it raised a host of questions, didn't it? Such as, why is Samson in Gaza, some 50 miles south of his home, Who's this lady of the night? And how did Samson come to see her? Did he just happen to see her? Or did he set out to see her? And further, how did this city come to know of Samson's presence? And how did they even know who he was? How had his reputation spread this far south? Word of mouth. Also, what did the men of the city surround? And why did they want to wait? Why not attack? Why not attack straight away? With that in mind, why did Samson decide to get up in the middle of the night? Why didn't he just sleep till morning? And why doesn't the narrator provide us with any insights into Samson's reasoning here, or the Lord's, for that matter? More importantly, why is there no mention of Yahweh? So lots of questions, and I believe rightly so, because this story is sketched out in the briefest of terms, leading us to ask the all-important question, I believe. Why? What is this story's purpose? And it's it's in answering this question, church, that I believe we encounter our first point for this morning. And that's the weakness of God's servant. The weakness of God's servant. Consistent with the character we encountered last week, I believe our author was determined to reinforce the image of Samson presented thus far. And that's of a man driven by his appetites and inexorably drawn to fraternize with Israel's enemies. Far from the hero characterized by ancient folklore and myth, Samson wasn't a selfless servant striving to set his people free. He was a self-serving strongman driven by his senses like a wild donkey whose jawbone, it just so happens, he'd used to slaughter a thousand men. So despite Samson's success over the Philistines given by his killing of the 30 men from Ashkelon, the destruction of the Philistines' standing grain by foxfire followed by the thousand with the jawbone, as we just mentioned, our author is keen to ensure that we as readers don't get caught up in hero worship. We don't get caught up in hero worship. And friends, I'm going to imagine that the moment I said that, our knee-jerk, some of us, our knee-jerk reaction was, well, I don't, won't do that. That's not my problem. I don't struggle with hero worship. And so this is insignificant for me. But friends, how many of us, as a question, have been deeply wounded by other Christians, so much so that we've we've found ourselves struggling to reconcile what we know of faith with our life experiences. Or how many of us have found ourselves categorizing others by their preferred or favorite pastor or, or, or author? How many of us have caught ourselves so disillusioned by the dilution of the American church's teaching that we've pondered just going solo? Not covenanting with another broken body and simply living our faith out on our own. And now, don't raise hands, but I would imagine we've all struggled with these sentiments at one time or another. And friends, we're not unique in this struggle. This tendency to idolize others marks God's people from Bible times. This is evidenced by the Apostle Paul's warning to the church in Corinth. In his first letter, as it's recorded in our Bibles, Paul chided the believers for their jealousy and their quarreling over their favorite leader. Having visited Corinth on on his second missionary journey, Paul spent a a year 
or slightly more than a year in that city, during which time he helped to establish the church. And following his departure, a Jewish apologist by the name of Apollos had come through and he'd exhorted the believers. Unfortunately, those who'd come to faith during Apollos' time in Corinth were now arguing with those who'd come to faith during Paul's tenure. And so the apostle rebukes them all and he says, are you not acting like mere men? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another says, I follow Apollos, are you not mere men? What after all is Apollos? And what's Paul? Each only servants through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned to each his task. I planted the seed, Paul said, Apollos watered it, but God made it grow. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. Church, when we lose sight of the one who worked salvation for us, and we allow our identity to become so associated with the mediators of that message that we freak out when things go wrong, then we succumbed to hero worship. And this is what I believe our author is determined to guard us as readers from, misplaced accolades. Samson doesn't deserve the glory here. He isn't the strength behind Israel's salvation experience. Yes, he's the instrument in this case, but he isn't the source, is he? God is. Now, it's interesting to observe here in this opening story the fact that while our hero is once again misbehaving, he still exhibits superhuman strength, doesn't he? Because the gates that are described here, these weren't single access entries like our homes possess today. The gateway to the Philistine city of Ashdod which was a city of similar size and dating has been excavated, and the doors found to have been at least two stories high. So we're talking about some massive doors, not to mention the fact that Samson carries them to a hill opposite Hebron, which was some 40 miles as the crow flies, uphill. Not that crows fly uphill, if you know what I'm talking about. So Samson would have walked over 40 miles uphill carrying gates that some scholars believe could have weighed in excess of four tons. That's superhuman or divinely enabled. Not to mention the fact that the town remains oblivious to the deliverer's removal of their gates, which most certainly would have made some noise. Couldn't have been a silent act. Further, there were guards at these gates, right? Along with the men that were told were waiting there to kill him. And yet somehow... Somehow they remain oblivious. Clearly, our author desires we see God's hand in all of these acts performed in spite of Samson's weakness. And church, the point that I believe we can't miss here is once again the beauty of the gospel, of God's grace. Despite Samson's weakness, God has promised to deliver his people. Therefore, he continues to show grace. Have you recognized God's grace in your life? And not have you accepted it, but have you recognized it? Because it's there. Every single person on this planet is a recipient of God's grace. For not a one of us deserves life. Not a one. But he has graciously given us time. Now, this moment, so that we might hear the gospel and we may be saved as we confess our sin and believe in Jesus. Have you recognized that your existence on this planet is marked and enabled by God's grace? And if so, have you acknowledged your need of God's grace in the forgiveness of your sin? In this first account, I believe that our author was determined to demonstrate the weakness of God's servant in order to highlight 
the greatness and grace of this servant's God. The greatness and grace of this servant's God. It's our second point for this morning, which I believe is communicated in the second story that follows. And so would you look with me now at verse 4? In verse 4, where our author continues writing. Sometime later, he fell in love with a woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. The rulers of the Philistines went to her and said, See if you can lure him into showing you the secret of his great strength and how we can overpower him so we may tie him up and subdue him. Each of us will give you 1,100 shekels of silver. So Delilah said to Samson, Tell me the secret of your great strength. And how you can be tied up and subdued. Now, before we get to Samson's responses, note Delilah's direct approach. Now, whether she was this blunt in reality or not, we'll never know. But clearly, our author has recorded her words in such a way as to eliminate any potential for misunderstanding on our part. Meaning, we cannot walk away from this church, this story church, and conclude that Delilah just got the better of poor Samson. This man wasn't duped, was he, by this girl's cunning. He was just a total ding-a-ling. I mean, what in the world did he think she was after? Maybe, maybe if she'd stopped with, tell me the secret of your great strength. And Samson could have been excused for thinking she was just another groupie, a fan keen on an inside scoop. But she doesn't stop there, does she? She doesn't. She goes on to explain why she wants to know. So you can be tied up and subdued. How nefarious do you have to be? And, and, and before your warning is heeded here. And the answer is, at least as it pertains to Samson, a little more, right? Because verse 7 we read that Samson answered her. If anyone ties me with seven fresh thongs, or that's bowstrings, so the things that would go on a bow, that have not been dried, I will become as weak as any other man. Then the rulers of the Philistines brought her seven fresh thongs, or bowstrings, that had not been dried, and she tied him with them, with men Hidden in the room, she called to him, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. But he snapped the bowstrings as easily as a piece of string snaps when it comes close to a flame. So the secret of his strength was not discovered. At this point, one would think, one would think that our hero would have put two and two together, concluding that Delilah's request to know his strength source wasn't your typical fan mail style inquiry. She obviously knows that his strength is superhuman, as do the Philistine leaders. And to this point, it's interesting to note their belief's twofold nature. That is that his strength source is distinct from him, and it can be overcome. It's a belief that Samson clearly doesn't share. At this stage, it appears Samson views himself as invincible, and his strength is his natural right. For why else would he ignore Delilah's request? It's villainous motivation, choosing instead to toy with her, at which point, consistent with the sexual stereotypes of a patriarchal society, verse 10 tells us that Delilah said to Samson, you've made a fool of me. You lied to me. Come, tell me, how can you be tied? Delilah plays the pouting lover, doesn't she? And as readers, we all, we all know this. We're familiar with this. Husbands, on Mother's Day, I know you've seen that lip before. I tend to see that lip in the winter when my dog wants to go out and my wife is sitting warmly ensconced on a couch under a comforter and she does not want to brave the chill. I've seen that lip. We've all seen that lip. We're familiar with the game that Delilah is playing, aren't we? And as is Samson, in fact, this experience should have been burned into his mind, pun intended. As we saw last week, his Timnite wife's similar whinings ultimately led to her being burned alive. 
unfortunately, at this point in Samson's life, he's so caught up in his own strength and his sense of invincibility, he keeps playing the game, doesn't he? Saying, if anyone ties me securely with new ropes that have never been used, I'll become as weak as any other man. So Delilah took new ropes and tied him with them. Then with men hidden in the room, she called to him, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. But he snapped the ropes off his arms as if they were threads. Delilah then said to Samson, until now, you've been making a fool of me and lying to me. Tell me how you can be tied. He replied, if you weave the seven braids of my head into the fabric on the loom and tighten it with a pin, then I'll become as weak as any other man. So while he was sleeping, Delilah took the seven braids of his head, wove them into the fabric and tightened it with a pin. Again, she called to him, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. He awoke from his sleep and pulled the pin in the loom with the fabric. And church right here, notice the clear progression that's taking place. The first and third answers that Samson gives here are linked by that term seven. Now, at first, his answer is a far cry from the truth, isn't it? Although it, is, it still retains an element of veracity as given by the number seven. However, by the third response, Samson's revealed the link between his hair and his strength. In, in each answer Samson provides, he comes closer and closer to revealing the true source of his strength. The longer the man plays the game, the more vulnerable he becomes. And church, in the same way, we who are God's chosen instruments, his children, saved by grace through faith in Jesus, filled then with his Holy Spirit, we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us, according to the Apostle Paul, Philippians 4, 13. He that is in us is greater than he that's in the world, 1 John 4, 4. If we have faith, Jesus said, the size of a mustard seed, then we can move mountains, Luke 17, 6. In our strength, which shares its source with that of Samson, I believe that we are just as prone as with Samson to the folly of invincibility. Now, I don't believe that this is the point of this text, principal point of this story, but it is most certainly an aside and one that we need to heed because how often... How often do we encounter temptation and rather than doing that which the scriptures urge in 2 Timothy 2.22 to flee the evil desires of youth or as James exhorted his readers in chapter 4 and verse 7 to resist the devil by drawing near and submitting to God or as Paul warned the Ephesians elsewhere in chapter 5 and verse 11 have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness. We entertain them, don't we? Like Samson, we go to the places where darkness likes to hide. We hang out with those whose encouragement isn't unto God's glory, but to the cravings of our sinful nature. And we entertain thoughts, and we engage in conversations that don't edify, but rather they tear down God's people and sully his witness in the world. In all of these actions, we may very easily convince ourselves that we can handle it. We can tease the tempter, playing his games, but church, we can't. We are not God, and were we, we would have nothing to do with wickedness. It's our pride that's on display when we linger and we allow our minds to indulge in the feast that our senses provide rather than retreating to the sanctuary of God's holy presence. Samson's behavior revealed his weakness. As with such nagging, Delilah prodded him day after day until, I love this phrase, he was tired to death. So, verse 17, he told her everything, 
No razor has ever been used on my head, he said, because I've been a Nazarite, set apart to God since birth. If my head were shaved, my strength would leave me, and I would become as weak as any other man. When Delilah saw that she had been told the truth, he had told her everything. She sent word to the rulers of the Philistines, come back once more. He's told me everything. So the rulers of the Philistines returned with the silver in their hands. Having put him to sleep on her lap, she called a man to shave off the seven braids of his hair and so began to subdue him, and his strength left him. Then she called Samson, the Philistines are upon you. He awoke from his sleep and thought, I'll go out as before. I'll shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. Then the Philistines seized him, gouged out his eyes, and took him down to Gaza, binding him with bronze shackles. They sent him, or set him, to grinding in the prison. But the hair on his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. Church, how telling, how telling is Samson's belief here that even after revealing his strength secret, I'm going to go out as before and shake myself free. But as our author points out, he didn't know that the Lord had left him. So despite informing Delilah of his strength source, it appears our deliverer never really got it. It's a fact confirmed, and if we consider the reference that he makes to God there in verse 17, where rather than, the, rather than using the term Yahweh to describe his Nazaritic covenant, Samson speaks of Elohim. It's what's translated by that term God in our Bibles. Elohim, which was a generic name, could have been used of any deity being worshipped in Canaan at that time. And friends, in a way, I believe that the contemporary church often displays frightening similarities to Samson's ignorance here. Where there are many, I believe, who attend church on a Sunday, who, who speak of God and live lives that acknowledge his existence, but who have no idea who he actually is as evidenced by their total lack of concern for sin. Like Samson, they believe God has created them to be happy, to, to answer to no one, to need nothing. And tragically, the consequences for believing these lies is suffering and enslavement. Now, not always physical, as in the case of Samson, who had his eyes burned out and was led away in shackles, but almost certainly emotional, spiritual enslavement and suffering. Church, we must not be ignorant of who God is. We have his word in which he has fully revealed himself to us, his will and his ways. And therefore, we've got to study it. This is why we gather together on a Sunday morning. We've got to memorize it, meditate upon it, hide its truths in our hearts so that we can stand firm against the lies of our adversary. And after we've done everything else to stand, because in our weakness, he's strong. I believe that the judge's author desired his readers, we his readers, to see the greatness and grace of Samson's God as revealed by the fact that despite all of Samson's failures, his hair begins to grow back. At which point we read verse 23. Now the rulers of the Philistines assembled to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their God, and to celebrate, saying, Our God has delivered Samson, our enemy, into our hands. When the people saw him, they praised their God, saying, Our God has delivered our enemy into our hands, the one who laid waste our land and multiplied its slain. While they were in high spirits, they shouted, Bring out Samson to entertain us. So they called Samson out of the prison, and he performed for them. When they stood him among the pillars, Samson said to the servant who held his hand, Put me where I can feel or feel the pillars that support the temple, so that I might lean against them. Now, the temple was crowded with men and women, 
all the rulers of the Philistines were there, and on the roof were about 3,000 men and women watching Samson perform. Then Samson prayed to the Lord, O sovereign Lord, remember me. O God, please strengthen me just once more, and let me with one blow get revenge on the Philistines for my two eyes. And then Samson reached toward the two central pillars on which the temple stood, bracing himself against them, his right hand on the one, his left hand on the other. Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. Then he pushed with all his might, and down came the temple on the rulers and all the people in it. And thus he killed many more when he died than while he lived. Then his brothers and his father's whole family went down to get him. They brought him back and buried him between Zorah and Eshtael in the tomb of Manoah, his father. He had led Israel 20 years. Church, this is such an incredible ending. I think for at least two reasons, both of which illuminate the greatness of God's grace in salvation while reiterating God's servant's weakness. First of all, notice Samson's interaction with God there. We're told in our NIV that he prayed to the Lord or called to the Lord if you have the ESV. And in both of these translations, what's being communicated is an impassioned plea for aid. So far from the self-righteous demand that we encountered back in chapter 15 when he was thirsty, now Samson reflects a newfound humility along with a newly named deity. As we noted previously, Samson referred to God in vague and indefinite terms, but now chained in a false god's temple. He doesn't cry out to a god, does he? No, he appeals to the sovereign Lord, Adonai Yahweh in the original, the God of Israel. Unfortunately, as we consider the content of his prayer, while Samson has clearly come to appreciate or to recognize God's greatness, he still appears far more concerned with himself, doesn't he? His own vengeance for his two eyes and the nature of his own end than with God's name being taunted by Philistines' temple songs and God's purpose for him as Israel's savior. Sadly, while Samson, it appears, has come to realize exactly where his strength has come from, his strength comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth, he still reveals his weakness by his self-concern. That's the first point. And then the second that I believe illuminates God's great grace in salvation here in our story's conclusion is given by the completeness or the totality displayed by God's victory. In Samson's final act of deliverance, God graciously again allowed his servant to, to, to fulfill his purpose. And in this work, Samson, we see God removes all of the Philistines' leaders along with some 3,000 other men and women. It's a point that I, leads our author to note how Samson killed many more in his death than while he lived. In Samson's death, God brought about a great victory. And yet, and yet, while such a description may be viewed as complimentary, we can't miss how God's deliverer failed in his life to fully live up to God's high calling, even though he was endowed with extraordinary strength. Samson was a mighty man. But he was also incredibly weak. And so as the sun sets on his 20 years of leadership, we can't but, we cannot but conclude how the only positive, the only positive that came from Samson's life was due to the gracious intervention of Yahweh, whose salvation is so very great. And church, Yahweh's salvation, as we said when we began, remains great because he's worked it for us in his Savior, who though like Samson in many ways, his prophesied birth, 
his holy separation unto God, his divine enabling, and even his betrayal by loved ones. Christ was without sin. In Christ Jesus, God accomplished our salvation. In his life, Jesus perfectly fulfilled God's law, fully satisfying our side of God's covenant demand for perfection. And in his death, Christ paid the penalty for our failure to be perfect. Only unlike Samson, Jesus didn't remain dead, did he? He rose. So whoever confesses their sin and believes in him may experience God's great salvation. Have you experienced this life-changing, life-giving, fulfilling reality? And I pray that you have. And if you're here this morning and in the things that you've heard, questions have begun to stir. Things that you don't fully understand but would love to have an answer for or at least pursue in discussion, then I would love to speak with you and I'll be standing down front in just a moment when we stand and sing. But church, for we <laughs> who have experienced God's life-changing salvation, may we give thanks for God's great grace and remember our weakness as evidenced by Samson. May we surround ourselves for that reason with God's covenant community, the church, so that we may faithfully live to his glory. Would you pray with me as you close? Father, you are good. And as we study your word, you remind us of how great you are. Lord, and how weak we are. Even those that you used to work deliverance for your people. You reveal as weak, not as heroes. For this is how we would choose to view them. This is how we would hold them up for emulation. And yet, Father, you reveal the weakness of these men. Directing us to see our need for one who would be like us in every way. But without sin. The perfect mediator. Savior. Deliverer. Jesus. When we see Jesus, we see you. Lord God, thank you for giving us hope of life eternal through belief in Jesus. And God, this morning, if there are any who do not have this hope, confident and sure, Lord, would this be the day that your grace, your spirit, by your spirit's power, you would open eyes, Lord, and lead us to the celebration of new life. Lord, and for others that might be this morning, then, have come to a realization of their need for this God's grace and salvation, may have even confessed their sin and believed, but have yet to stand before others and make clear their allegiance to the mighty King. Lord, may, maybe this is the day as we stand and sing in a moment, may they come down front and proclaim before others their love for Christ. Lord, and for we who are your children, confident in what you have done for us. Lord, may we be mindful of our proclivity to sin. Lord, we never get beyond your great salvation, but only grow more and more in love with the God who saved us and realize our need.
for his grace. God, thank you for this great salvation. In Jesus' name, amen.